Support for IPR comes from Corridor Vein Center and Corridor Aesthetics, treatment for varicose veins and spider veins, also providing facial rejuvenation services and treatment for moderate to severe acne. More at Corridor Vein and CorridorAesthetics.com. It's a Politics Wednesday edition of River to River from IPR News. I'm Ben Kiefer. Joining us today, political scientists Rachel Caulfield of Drake University and Chris Larimer of the University of Northern Iowa. Chris is a professor of political science, like likewise, uh, Rachel as well. Chris and Rachel, welcome to our program. Hi, Ben. Thanks for having me. Chris, Hi, are you ben. there? Hi, Rachel. Yes, Chris is there as well. We'd like to have our listeners join us as well as we clip through oh, half a dozen uh, news items on the political landscape. 1-866-780-9100. 1-866-780-9100. Or email us, river to river at iowapublicradio.org. Well, a little later in the program, we'll get uh, Chris's and Rachel's take on the uh, caucus status for the Democrats. Perhaps a 50-year tradition here in Iowa going away. Will National Democrats bump Iowa from its first-in-the-nation caucus status? Also, we heard about the, the leader of the Oath Keepers, convicted of seditious conspiracy and those controversial dinner guests that former President Trump had, uh, it turns out, a uh, reaction to that uh, divided uh, among GOP uh, leaders. And is election denial a passing threat, or is it here to stay? They'll weigh in on those items a little bit later in the hour. But first, let's start uh, with this news uh, from um, yesterday, days before Democrats lose their unified control of Congress. The Senate passed a bill mandating federal recognition for same-sex marriage. Um, Now it goes to the House. uh, The House expected to approve it. The vote in the Senate, 61 to 36. It uh, put it on track to become law in the final weeks. Now remember, Republicans assuming the majority of the House of Representatives at the start of the new Congress, but that won't be till January. Now this bill, bill... would repeal the Defense of Marriage Act, which denied federal benefits to same-sex couples. It prohibits states from denying the validity of an out-of-state marriage based on sex, race, or ethnicity. Interestingly, our two U.S. senators, both Republicans splitting their votes, uh, Chuck Grassley voting no, Senator Ernst voting Yes. Uh, Let's listen to uh, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer addressing reporters ahead of the vote. Today we hope to do marriage equality on the floor, and it's personal to me. This is the tie I wore at my daughter's wedding to her wife. Okay, Rachel, let's start with you. What is the significance of this bill expected to become law and the the fact that a number of Republicans supported it? Yeah, so... For those who have pay attention to the Supreme Court, same-sex marriage was expanded across the country in 2015 through the Obergefell decision, uh, which really rested on a doctrine of interpretation called substantive due process under the 14th Amendment. That's the same doctrine that was, um, yeah, that that underpinned the right to abortion in Roe v. Wade. And so when the Dobbs decision came down, Justice Thomas wrote a concurring opinion indicating that he would actually expand the reasoning of the Dobbs decision in a number of areas that rely on this particular legal interpretive framework. And Democrats proposed, almost immediately proposed, that they were going to codify same-sex marriage and interracial marriage. It was seen largely as a symbolic act at the time. 
And then gradually they started to find some Republican support. So the House passed a similar measure. Um, They had 47 Republicans join the Democrats to pass in the House last, well, I guess it was earlier this fall. Um, And then there was always the question of what would happen in the Senate, this 50-50 Senate. Mm -hmm. Um, But there's been a, a coalition of senators working behind the scenes to kind of lobby Republican colleagues. Susan Collins has really been central to that effort. And yesterday, they had 12 Republicans join 49 Democrats. Uh, Raphael Warnock uh, was not present for the vote, he or he chose not to vote in this particular instance, um, which means that they could overcome a filibuster. So they had the 61 votes necessary to pass it in the Senate. Importantly, they had to, as part of the negotiations, they added provisions that would protect religious liberty. So... Those provisions basically guarantee that nonprofit institutions cannot lose their nonprofit status for denying uh, recognition to same-sex couples. And similarly, there was a provision to explicitly make polygamy uh, a separate issue. (laughs) So this would not cover polygamous marriages. Mm -hmm. Um, And then they they got the requisite support. They expect it'll it'll pass the House and go to the president. Chris, what can you tell us about the GOP senators who supported versus those who didn't, and they are represented in our two Republican senators? Yeah, I think, you know, when you look at the the 12 Republicans who who did support the measure, um, some of them are uh, what would be considered more moderate Republican senators, the senators who have in the past um, defected from their party. So, you know, Lisa Murkowski from Alaska, Mitt Romney from uh, from Utah. Um, and so, you know, some of them are expected, um, but certainly, you know, that they had 12, as as Rachel said, is is significant because that was the number that was needed to overcome the, the filibuster at, to, to end closure to end the filibuster at 60 votes. And so, um, you know, I think what we're seeing on this issue is, you know, increasingly bipartisan support within Congress. We know mm-hmm. that where public opinion has been on the issue in terms of uh, being in favor of that, in favor of same-sex marriage, and moving strongly in that direction. I mean, you look at the evolution of public opinion on same-sex marriage in Iowa, and you go back to prior to the Varnum v. Bryan ruling in, in 2009, looking at um, public opinion in Iowa on same-sex marriage before that ruling and then after, and how quickly it changed to, you know, a majority of Iowans being in favor of same-sex marriage. You know, it's the same uh, finding and pattern we see at the national level where, you know, a majority of Americans are in favor of this. It's Now it seems that, that Congress is also, you know, moving in that direction to where we see, you know, pretty strong bipartisan support, not just the support of a few Republicans in Congress, as Rachel said, but a considerable number of Republicans. This offers protection, but I wonder if it's the, the final word or uh, ultimate protection here, uh, Rachel. As you mentioned, uh, well, let's go back to Iowa. Iowa, only the third state in the nation to recognize same-sex marriages back in 2009 by our uh, state Supreme Court. Very controversial at the time, but then you mentioned Obergefell in, in, in uh, 2015 uh, making that uh, the law of the land. Now, with this Assuming this is signed into law, um, what if uh, that is overturned? Obergefell would would we still have protection for same sex marriage in the country? Well, so the way this law is written, 
It does not require, as you noted, it does not require any state to perform or recognize legally same-sex marriages if the Obergefell decision is overturned. Um, so, you know, right now, nationally, under the Obergefell precedent, same-sex marriages uh, are legal in every state in the country. If that decision were to be overturned by the Supreme Court, then presumably states could outlaw same-sex marriage again. Um, this law, what it would do is it would say, look, any law that is performed legally in one state has to be recognized by other states. So it doesn't require states to change their laws. It it allows states to not recognize same-sex relationships within their borders. But any marriage that has been performed legally at this point and, or up until um, the Obergefell decision would be overturned – sometime in the future, um, and any marriage that is recognized by another state and is legal in another state would have to be recognized by all states. Join our conversation, one 780 9100 if you've just joined us. Rachel Caulfield of Drake University, our other political scientist, Chris Larimer of the University of Northern Iowa, one 780 9100 or River to River at iowapublicradio.org, our email. Let's move on to some other um, political news uh, making headlines. We're hearing today that the U.S. House is moving toward approving legislation to avert uh, a nationwide rail strike imposed by a labor agreement between rail companies and their workers. This is as the lawmakers uh, are rushing to shield our economy from the threat of a, a, a work stoppage during the holiday season and prevent uh, disruption, of course, that would happen in shipping across the country. Let's hear from the two major party uh, leaders. Um, here's House, uh, he, here is the, um, uh, uh, let's see, let's listen to House <laughs> Speaker Nancy Pelosi uh, saying that the strike could have catastrophic effect on the economy. It's not everything I would like to see. I think that we should have paid sick leave. Uh, Every country, every developed country in the world has it. We don't. But nonetheless, we we have an improved situation. Uh, And again, I don't like going against the ability of of, uh, unions to strike. But weighing the equities, we must avoid a strike. uh, Jobs will be lost. Even union jobs will be lost. Water will not be safe. Product will not be going to market. It is, uh, we could lose 750,000 jobs, some of them union jobs. That must be avoided. Meanwhile, House Minority Leader Republican Kevin McCarthy having some harsh words about it uh, for the Biden administration. Nobody wants the economy to fail. Nobody wants this to happen. But this is another situation where an administration told us one thing, just like they told us about inflation was transitory. We found that it was not. This was in a negotiation that was selected by this administration. This was something that was celebrated by this administration that it was fixed. And now right before a holiday season, right when farmers need to ship their goods and others, we have to rush something to the floor. Chris, can you help us out, understand what's going on here? Yeah, well, it's a fairly complex, but I mean, you know, you kind of summed it up in that, you know, rail workers, 12 unions representing rail workers have threatened to go on strikes during December 1st. 
if their demands are not met, particularly on, on pay raises, on paid sick leave, um, and time off. And so we're, we're coming up on that deadline. And what you're seeing from uh, leaders in Congress is that both Democrats and Republicans want to avert this. You know, um, both, both parties do not want to see, or neither party wants to see any sort of damage to the economy, particularly around the holidays, but any damage to the economy when voters would look to both parties to say, you know, why didn't you do something when you had the chance to do it? But for Democrats, there's the added political difficulty of stepping in and really overriding um, a process where unions are involved, where unions have been a big part of Democratic support in some states, um, a big part of Democratic victories in some states, particularly this last midterm election. So politically for Democrats, it, it, it's difficult. For Republicans, as you heard, uh, Leader McCarthy talking about, you know, putting a lot of blame on the Biden administration, but his hands are, are somewhat tied as well because he, his party cannot be seen as uh, voting against something that would ultimately avert really sort of an economic catastrophe a Catastrophe if there would actually be a rail strike. Mm-hmm. Rachel, how are we to interpret that, that blaming by McCarthy <laughs> um, at, um, on Biden um, politics or, um, you know, he, he compared it to um, uh, inflation, which we know is regardless of the, demo, the party of the, the, the president, uh, the pretty much out of the hands. There's not a lot of levers you can <laughs> adjust <laughs> to, uh, uh, to uh, tame inflation when that happens. Yeah, I'm. Um- this is Kevin McCarthy's job, right, is to, to position Republicans in Congress uh, and to make the case that um, their method of addressing problems is different and better than the president's. Joe Biden, you know, his secretary of labor sat down in this marathon meeting with union representatives and company representatives, and they hashed out an agreement that included higher wages, did not include the sick leave and medical leave. Um, and day, you know, time off that that the unions had asked for, but they took a lot of credit for that agreement. They, you know, they they really celebrated it as a big win for the administration in negotiating this tough, uh, you know, this tough situation and averting a strike. And then it went to the unions for a vote. And of the twelve unions, eight of them voted yes, and four of them voted no. Said we don't like this agreement. And to be clear, the unions know very well that it's December 1st and the holidays are coming and that this would cause just a chaotic environment for the U.S. economy right now. Uh, So they have some leverage. And politically, it makes sense to use it right now. Um, And the administration, you know, Joe Biden came into office saying he would be the most pro-union president we've seen. Mm -hmm. Uh, And he's he's had some real policy wins on that front. But in this case, this is positioning him against the unions. And, And politically, that puts him in a very awkward position. Kevin McCarthy sees an opportunity to kind of seize upon that. Um, so in some sense, it's just politics. In another sense, the Biden administration, you know, they really did claim credit a little too early on this one. Mm-hmm. Rachel Caulfield of Drake University, Chris Larimer of the University of Northern Iowa. It's a Politics Wednesday edition of River to River from IPR News. Let's move on to that controversial dinner that the former president, Donald Trump, had um, uh, two weeks after announcing his 
2024 run for president, Donald Trump uh, causing an uproar and some division within the GOP uh, after having dinner with Nick Fuentes. Um, the FBI has called Fuentes a white supremacist. Uh, Fuentes has also made comments uh, uh, doubting the, that the Holocaust happened. Uh, now, in statements, uh, former President Trump said he was meeting with Ye. This is the, the rapper formerly known as Kanye West. Um, he said, well, Kanye West just brought Fuentes, and, and Trump said he didn't know Fuentes. Now, here's some reaction to that at a news briefing the White House uh, press secretary, Karine Jean-Pierre, was asked about the dinner. Here's some of what she had to say. I'm not going to respond to everything that happens with the former president, but this, this is something that's important that uh, we speak very clear about and we speak very, um, very forcefully about. Uh, this administration, this president totally rejects uh, uh, bigotry, racism, anti-Semitism, uh, and there is just no place uh, for these types of vile forces in our society. And this is something that we are going to continue to deny, including Holocaust deniers. And let's not forget when you say things like this when you um, when when you do not speak out against uh, these type of poisonous and dangerous uh, kind of remarks or uh, a representation if you will uh, that is uh, that is also uh, in- incredibly dangerous within itself and so we need to uh, we should all be condemning this and we should be very clear uh, very clear uh, and say it in, in really absolute uh, clear terms. And again, this is something that we condemn and we will continue to speak out against. The White House Press Secretary, let's uh, switch over to the GOP response here, or one of them, rather. The Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell speaking out against the dinner. This was during a, a briefing with reporters yesterday. Now, political reporting, McConnell declined to address whether he would support Trump if the former president wins the 2024 Republican nomination. But uh, listen to the reference here he makes. Let me just say that there is no room in the Republican Party for anti-Semitism or white supremacy. And anyone meeting with people advocating that point of view, in my judgment, are highly unlikely to ever be elected president of the United States. Chris, let me turn to you. What do you make of this controversial dinner, the reaction especially of the of the GOP here? Well, you know, I, I think it, it's astonishing to me the the extent to which, and you didn't hear it as much in McConnell's remarks, although McConnell still did not mention the former president by name. You know, while he, he, yeah, right, and it's important. He he, Kevin McCarthy uh, condemned Fuentes, white supremacist, but without directly criticizing Trump for dining with him. Right, right, and and not calling out uh, former President Trump for you know con- not condemning the those remarks. And, and and similarly, you know, with with leader uh, with Mitch McConnell um, saying, you know, that the, uh, the uh, anybody that would meet with those individuals, you know, is highly unlikely to ever be elected president of the United States. Still, not really calling out the former president for for taking that meeting in the first place, or that the former president needs to condemn those remarks. So, you know, you still get the sense that particularly at least for Kevin McCarthy, that there's a there's some sort of hold that the former president has on him or there's a concern that Kevin McCarthy has about offending uh, the former, you know, 
the, the former president for whatever reason. And, and so it's just astonishing to me to see how this is this is playing out. Yeah, and I'll just add here that uh, yesterday the former President Trump insulted McConnell in an interview on Fox News, calling him a loser for our nation. Um, uh, Mitch is a loser for our nation for the Republican Party who would not have been elected in Kentucky without my endorsement, uh, which he begged me for because he was going down. So uh, not surprising coming from the former president, given his track record, Rachel. Yeah, not surprising. And, you know, the the Republican Party right now is, I think, facing this, obviously, this ongoing division. And Donald Trump has a unique hold on the party. I don't think it's because Donald Trump has a hold. I think it's because Donald Trump has supporters within the party. The party needs those people to be excited. They need them to turn out to vote. They are the base right now. Uh, and they are reliable Republican voters. And so they're they're kind of playing this game where, you know, there's a line somewhere and, and they're not quite sure where it is. They want to they want to keep people motivated and keep people in the party, keep those supporters uh, active within the party. But they know that if they go too far in denouncing some of this, uh, they may lose some of those supporters. And so you're seeing kind of this this very hot and cold and, you know, unsettled component to Republican leadership right now. I mean, House Republicans will reinstate now Marjorie Taylor Greene and Paul Gosar for their committee assignments. They had been removed largely because of anti-Semitic comments. The very fact that Donald Trump is, you know, is dining or meeting with Kanye West, I'm not cool enough to call him yay, so I'm going to call him Kanye. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Kanye West. I mean, Kanye West has his own problems with anti-Semitism. And so there's this kind of this, you know, this ongoing yeah, this ongoing tension mm-hmm. that the party itself is trying to work out. Meanwhile, you know, you have Ben Shapiro, who's moving away from from President Trump. You have Asa Hutchinson, John Thune, the number two Republican um, in the Senate. He came out and, and, you know, denounced these this meeting by President Trump. And so, you know, that divide is becoming more and more public, more and more difficult to navigate. Mm-hmm. And in a few words, Rachel, what might this mean for Donald Trump's 2024 bid for the White House? Um, we've got a long time before the, uh, 2024, <laughs> but um, um, do you see that divide growing? I see the divide growing. I think, you know, I'm not obviously the first person to say this. Much of it will depend on who runs and how many people run, how divided the field is. Mm -hmm. If the Republicans can unify behind one alternative to Donald Trump, then Donald Trump's, you know, 35 to 40 percent of the base uh, would lose uh, in in the nomination fight. If, however, they're dividing uh, among, you know, six or seven candidates or even three or four candidates, then, you know, the block of 35 to 40 percent could be very powerful and Donald Trump could be the nominee again. Political scientists Rachel Caulfield and Chris Larimer will be back after a short break and uh, we'll talk about the conviction of um, the leader of the Oath Keepers militia convicted of seditious conspiracy uh, this week in that landmark case. We'll ask uh, our guests what that means, the significance of that conviction. Back in just a moment. 
Support for IPR comes from Corridor Vein Center and Corridor Aesthetics, treatment for varicose veins and spider veins, also providing facial rejuvenation services and treatment for moderate to severe acne. More at Corridor Vein and Corridor Aesthetics.com. Support for IPR comes from The Healing Room at Upstream Functional Medicine, offering medical spa services that support the body's natural ability to detoxify from environmental challenges. Learn more about The Healing Room at upstreamfm.com. So happy to have you on board on this edition of River to River from IPR News. I'm Ben Kiefer. It's a Politics Wednesday edition. So happy to have Chris Larimer aboard, uh, also political scientist uh, Rachel Caulfield, uh, Rachel of Drake University, Chris of the University of Northern Iowa, and you. Glad to have you aboard. If you'd like to join our conversation about any of the oh, half dozen news items on the political front, uh, join us, 1-866-780-9100. Coming up a little bit later this half hour, we'll ask uh, Chris and Rachel about uh, Iowa's 50-year reign of going first and uh, how that may come to an end, the caucuses in the Democratic column. Also, the generational change in the U.S. House leader, Democratic leadership, that's still to come. But first of all, let's talk a little bit about the landmark case decided this week, a January 6th case. This is the leader of the Oath Keepers militia, one of his subordinates, subordinates convicted this week of seditious conspiracy for plotting to keep Donald Trump in power. It was an extensive plot starting after the 2020 election course, culminating in that mob attack on the Capitol on January 6th of 2021. Now, this jury in the federal district court in Washington found three other defendants in the case not guilty of sedition, acquitted Mr. Rhodes of two separate conspiracy charges. Uh, But the charges that stuck that uh, he was found guilty of marked the first time in nearly 20 trials related to the Capitol attack that a jury decided that the violence that erupted on January 6th was the product of an organized conspiracy. Chris, let's start with you, with your thoughts on the significance of this conviction. Well, I think you, you, hit, you hit it on it right there, that this is the first time that there's been a guilty verdict in 20 trials uh, relating to conspiracy related to the January 6th attack. So that's that's significant in itself. Um, you know, in terms of public opinion, like we've we've talked on the show before, it's hard to know what this does in terms of moving people's perceptions of of the insurrection on January 6th and and how they view that. And if if people are able to view it not through their own partisan lens, if they're if they're active in politics and and they um, and they follow it closely, right? So, I, you know, it's significant because it is the first conviction. Um, but again, on public opinion, it's it's hard to know if there's going to be a lot of movement. As I understand it, the 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 decision itself was also a, a little bit unique and and kind of difficult to understand. As I'm reading about it uh, this morning, they you know, convicted him of disrupting the certification process, but not of planning in, in advance to disrupt the certification process. Mm-hmm. But he's also, but he's been found guilty of seditious conspiracy. So that's a little bit difficult. Um, that's beyond me in terms of how that plays out in terms of the, the legal implications. But it, this is incredibly important step in terms of, you know, trying to find a path to understand why January 6th happened and who's responsible for the January 6th, uh, 2021 insurrection. Rachel, your thoughts? 
Yeah, I would agree with all of that. Um, this is a major conviction, both in terms of kind of what happened on January 6th in particular. There are about 900 cases now wandering their way through the court systems of, of our country. Um, and we have every reason to expect that there may be hundreds more. Uh, but, you know, this right now, this is by far the biggest conviction, the most serious conviction, 60 years in prison he's facing. Um, to Chris's point, it is, it's a, it's kind of a confusing uh, jury verdict. Juries often are a little confusing uh, because they are, in fact, lay people. So the legal terms, um, you know, while they get jury instructions from a judge, um, they they interpret those jury instructions and the facts of the case in ways that may be idiosyncratic to that particular group of people. But in this case, it appears, you know, he, he was acquitted on kind of this planning in advance to disrupt the certification vote, but he was convicted on seditious conspiracy to disrupt the certification vote. So right. it implies that perhaps the jury came to the conclusion that this was more of a spontaneous action of a group of people who maybe otherwise, you know, they hadn't engaged in long-term planning, but on the day of had nonetheless conspired. Mm. Um, so it's a little unclear. Juries are often unclear in that way. Rachel, I, I assume you'll agree based on what you're saying that the uh, that uh, with Chris, that, that this will not change perceptions, that um, the public attitudes have hardened in one camp or the other, um, um, interpreting what happened on January 6th and whether it's a, a grave threat to our democracy. Yeah, I don't, I don't see it significantly changing public opinion. I do think it could per- perhaps have a chilling effect on organizational efforts going forward. Uh, if people realize that they individually might be held accountable uh, and potentially spend the rest of their life in jail for planning something like this, mm-hmm. that may, you know, that may dissuade some folks from, um, you know, from wanting to be a part of these sorts of organized protest movements going forward. Mm-hmm. Let's jump a little bit to the January 6th committee. Their their tenure will be winding down, won't it, Rachel? It uh, will. Yes. And, and uh, the Republicans... Uh, uh, well, just what happens to that committee? It just uh, ceases to exist. <laughs> it just disappears. It, it issue, but before then, it issues a report, right? Yes, yes. Uh, in the new Congress, we're expecting that uh, the the incoming Republican majority will not continue this committee. That's been expected for months and months, that if the Republicans took control of the House, that this committee would, would not continue. Um, but that means that the committee has worked on that timeline from the beginning. And so they have every intention of issuing a final report and have said that eight chapters of that report are finished and ready to go. So they're wrapping up some final interviews and kind of figuring out the timeline for release. Mm-hmm. Let's uh, pivot over to more Iowa politics here in the the final minutes. Perhaps we'll go back to some national politics. But I want to ask you, too, about um, the um, the re- midterm election results now. Republicans at a national level predicted a red wave in the midterm elections, but they sustained losses in some areas they had hoped to win. Uh, Democrats ended up winning many of the uh, Senate races that were hard fought, um, Arizona, Nevada, Pennsylvania. And uh, we're waiting for, well, we still, we know that the Democrats will retain control of the Senate, at least by a 50-50 margin, perhaps 51 to 49. That uh, one Democratic held seat in Georgia remains to be determined in a runoff January 
rather December 6th, early voting ongoing. Here in Iowa, though, Chris and Rachel, you know, it was a different story. Republicans deepening their hold on state government, uh, voters here ousting Democrats in the the 3rd Congressional District, Cindy Axney, also the state attorney general, the state treasurer. And um, in this new coming year, only one Democrat will hold a statewide elected office uh, in uh, Iowa, uh, State Auditor Rob Sand. In the legislature, Republicans securing 22 of 34 Iowa Senate seats that were up for grabs. And according to unofficial results, Republicans winning 63 of the 100 Iowa House seats during the election. Chris, I know you pay attention a lot to local uh, legislative uh, uh, elections. Uh, What does this mean, this uh, strengthening by the Republicans on the uh, legislature? Well, as you said, it's it's a significant move. Um, You know, certainly if you look at the Iowa Senate, we're going from 32 to 34 seats. That's uh, very noteworthy in the sense that, you know, in the Iowa Senate, uh, appointments by the governor to state boards and commissions require two-thirds vote. If they're at 34 seats now, that would mean that Democrats, if they vote in unison, if Republicans vote in unison, that Democrats would no longer be able to block those appointments. And so that's, that's noteworthy there. Moving from 60 to 63 seats in the Iowa House, again, just adds to the margin that uh, Republicans have, making it more difficult, potentially meaning it would take more cycles forward to retain the majority in the Iowa House. Looking at you know the, the last few midterm elections in Iowa, the results from the state House and the state Senate, um, you know this the election was not. Uh, the 2010 election, where Democrats lost six seats in the Iowa Senate and 16 seats in the Iowa House, but they did lose seats in, in both houses. And for them to get back to majority in either house would really take a, an election of historic. Yeah, uh, Chris, we're, we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna dial back into you. Uh, you're you're breaking up a little bit for the final minutes. Let's pivot over to Rachel. Uh, we'll reconnect with you, Chris, in just a moment. Rachel, <laughs> your read on this. <laughs> I would agree with with Chris's general points here, which is this is not 2010, but certainly it indicates, uh, you know, an ascendant Republican Party in in Iowa. I think part of that has to do with the current strength of our political party organizations, you know, um, but I think it also has to do with kind of a national brand and understanding of what the parties stand for. Uh, clearly in Iowa, Governor Reynolds is is very, very popular um, across the entire state and um, that not to imply that she's popular with everyone, but she has high and, approval ratings. She's doing well. She, right, she and being, won you know, handily. Right. And being considered as a, a, a possible vice presidential candidate for Donald Trump, should he become the nominee? She has been on the list for sure. Mm. Um, but if you look, you know, if you just look at kind of demographic patterns, you know, Mike Franken running again, you know, running against somebody that you know they thought earlier this year statewide support for Chuck Grassley had declined pretty significantly. Mike Franken as a candidate, I mean, he won in five of ninety-nine counties. So clearly, the Democratic base is centralized in a few population centers, and 
and statewide, Republicans, I think, are speaking to a broader range of communities that includes the national brand of the Republican Party compared to the national brand of the Democratic Party right now. All right. When we look at Iowa's 99 counties, it was only five of them. Johnson, Lynn, Blackhawk, Story, and Polk that backed Franken over exactly. Grassley. Yeah, so yeah. Uh, that that is uh, something very significant. Uh, Chris is back with us. Sorry about that, Chris. Um, no. I, I wanted to get your read, Chris, on why Iowa Democrats have lost traction with voters in the state. Is it uh, more the successful messaging policies of the GOP, or are the Iowa Democrats really failing to, to do something here? They need to... Go back to the drawing board. I, you know, I, I think that's, that's the big question because, um, you know, it's hard to know. You know, you can look at the turnout data, and I think, you know, a couple of the points that I'm waiting on are, you know, turnout numbers from 18 to 24-year-olds, mm-hmm. turnout numbers from voters who are registered as no party, because historically when those numbers are up, Democrats are can be are more competitive in, in midterm elections. So I think, you know, and that mobilization part could be related to messaging. Um, it could be related to, you know, the recruitment of candidates, just having candidates in all the races. You know, there were, I think, roughly was 40-some-odd races in the Iowa House where either side did not have a challenger from one of the other two major, the other major party. Mm-hmm. So I think, it, you know, I think it's probably candidate recruitment. I think it's probably messaging. Um, but really the margins in the state are really starting to expand out. And I, and I came back on and was hearing heard Rachel talking about, you know, that for the for the US Senate seat where Grassley won, you know, ninety you know, ninety four of the ninety nine counties. Yes. Um the average margin in those counties his average margin of victory was over thirty points. Um so it, it it's to that point where it and I think this is really reflecting that rural urban divide that we see throughout the country. It's just that rural urban divide in Iowa, the demographics is really sharpening or deepening that divide. And so I'm not sure if it's if it's messaging, if it's recruitment, if it's mobilization, it's probably a combination of things. Mm-hmm. Rachel, anything to add to that? No, I would agree with that completely. Mm-hmm. Well, let's move on in the final minutes to talk about the fate of the Iowa caucuses in the Democratic column. I mean, the, the Republicans going ahead with uh, theirs, as as far as we can tell right now. Uh, but Iowa's 50-year reign of going first, the significance of that in the presidential nominating process may come to an end. And uh, this week, um, another step uh, that may lead to that, the Democratic National Committee's Rules and Bylaws Committee meeting this week in Washington, D.C. IPR's Clay Masters reporting on that. I hope to talk with him uh, on Friday on this program when we know more. But um, we're reminded that Iowa has kicked off this presidential nominating process since way back in 1972. And the National Democrats now poised to upend decades of this precedent They're gathering in Washington, D.C. this week. They'll vote on a new presidential nominating calendar. And and then uh, after the committee, the full DNC expected to finalize calendar decisions in early 2023. Rachel, you are a caucus expert. (laughs) Um, How likely is it that Iowa will be bumped from the first in the nation status? Well, I I think it's fairly likely. I also would just note that in order to make its plea to stay among the first five, um, the the Democratic Party in Iowa has proposed a series of changes to the caucus process in Iowa that will fundamentally alter the nature of the caucus itself. So even if Iowa is 
uh, you know, among the first five states, the caucus will be unrecognizable uh, to those of us who have known and loved it in the Un- past. <laughs> unrecognizable, unrecognizable how? Well, so the proposal that they put before the the DNC Rules and Bylaws Committee, uh, as they you know as they petitioned to be one of the first five states, they proposed basically that um, you know the the system of everybody gathering and doing a preference vote by moving around the room that would be done away with entirely. The preference vote, uh, the vote for candidates, would take place over a two week period by mail. Uh, so it would basically become, in many respects, kind of a party-run mail-in balloting procedure, and then they would hold uh, caucus meetings on caucus night, but the, the votes would already be in at that point. So the actual voting would not take place at the caucus locations. There would be no realignment period, um, and and the way of counting votes and awarding delegates was not entirely clear. Um, but it it would certainly be different. So so the total votes would be reported out as it was in 2020. Um, how they how those votes would translate into delegates um, was not entirely clear in their proposal. But they said they would they had a system in mind that they could use. So the the caucus that we've known and loved, uh, if that you know if that proposal comes into being, um, the caucus that we've known and loved even if we're first, uh, will be gone uh, at this point. So, you know, the the DNC has set up this process. They laid out three criteria from the very beginning. They said they wanted uh, states that would be diverse. They wanted states that would be competitive, where Democrats are competitive. And they wanted a state, you know, to, to put forward a proposal to guarantee feasibility. Um, so those were their three criteria. Anybody who pays close attention to Iowa and was paying attention in 2020 at all uh, would say that those three criteria were kind of uniquely created to disadvantage Iowa um, and its application. Mm -hmm. I happen to believe that there are great reasons why Iowa should be first. And um, (laughs) I'm I'm really deeply disappointed that I don't think the – you know, I I think this is a short-sighted uh, decision-making process right now, largely because Democrats need to win in places like Iowa if they're going to win the presidency. Yeah. Chris, your thoughts here, of course, so throw in here the mix. Um, uh, I remember that election, uh, well, caucus night, the, disa- mm-hmm. the disastrous 2020 <laughs> caucus, uh, unable to report results. remember being here till midnight and still not knowing what was up. Yeah. Uh, the tangled technology, the organizational failures. Chris, that played into this, too, and not in Iowa's favor. It did, and it, and it was kind of something that had been building for a few election cycles. I mean, you could go back even to the 2012 Iowa caucuses on the Republican side where they had to go to a, a recount, essentially, and two weeks after the caucuses declare that, oh, yeah, Rick Santorum actually won by, you know, uh, 34 votes or whatever it was, you know, after with the, the process had already moved on to yep. uh, New Hampshire. I think for, you know, for Democrats, you know, one of the things – here, too, and this speaks to what Rachel was talking about, is, you know, it, it depends on the, how long a view they're looking at. If they're saying Iowa's not competitive just based on the last two caucus cycles, that ignores, you know, the fact that you could argue Iowa's still a swing state. If it went for Obama twice, then for Trump twice, you know, that, that it swings back and forth. And so how long of a perspective are we really willing to look here? Um, I think another thing, you know, that, you know, if you're making the case for Iowa, you can also say that, look, Iowa has 
overlapping media markets. It's easy to get around in the state. You know, some of the some of the reports that we're hearing are that Michigan and Minnesota are in the front running to be the states that move up into this first group. Well, it's it's going to be extraordinarily difficult to campaign all around Minnesota, let alone all around the state of Michigan. Um, and if you know if people value seeing candidates interact with voters up close on on a smaller scale. Um, that's easier to do in a state like Iowa where and do it around the entirety of the state rather than trying to do that around a place, a geographic region like Minnesota or Michigan. I think also, you know, um, it's interesting here that, you know, the Democrats are being criticized for those three points that, that Rachel made. On the other hand, if you look at kind of the predictability of what Iowa, the role Iowa serves, you know, who does well in Iowa is if, on the Democratic side, is a fairly strong predictor of how they're going to do in New Hampshire. That's not the case on the Republican side um, when you go mm-hmm. Iowa to New Hampshire. And so because, you know, it's just different electorates, different types of candidates on, on both sides do, do well in different states. And so, you know, I think it's going to be interesting to see if Iowa's not first, what is the reasoning? What, how long, like Rachel said, how long term of a perspective are they looking at to say that Iowa shouldn't have this place? Mm-hmm. Uh, a quick uh, response from each of you. Perhaps we can tuck this in at the end of the show. Uh, that Georgia runoff going to happen? Well, early voting going on now, but December sixth is the date. Um, uh, Rachel, do you have a sense of whether Walker or Warnock <laughs> will win? Uh, I always love it when you try to pin me down on a, on a late breaking <laughs> prediction. Then that's I, great. <laughs> I love it. I love to ask those questions. I get to hear your laugh and and uh, your enjoyment of the question. <laughs> I'm not going to go out on that limb. <laughs> okay. What about you, Chris? <laughs> uh, I think my phone's probably cutting out again. Uh, <laughs> I may uh, not answer that one. <laughs> thank you so much uh, uh, for, for uh, yes, that's also for the humor to finish up our show here. Chris Larimer, professor of political science at the University of Northern Iowa. Rachel Caulfield, likewise, political science professor, department co-chair uh, at uh, Drake University's uh, political science department. Rachel and Chris, until next time, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. River to River today, produced by uh, uh, Caitlin Troutman and uh, also uh, with help from Natalie Dunlap. I'm Ben Kiefer. Thanks for joining us. Tune in again tomorrow. Support for IPR comes from The Healing Room at Upstream Functional Medicine offering medical spa services that support the body's natural ability to detoxify from environmental challenges. Learn more about The Healing Room at upstreamfm.com.